Hi, this is Liza Casabona, Managing Editor of Retail Dive. What you read on our site is only part of the story. Our reporters and editors are constantly researching, reading, and talking about the retail industry. And we, like most of you, are currently consumed by the seismic changes retailers face. We are also, like many of you, working through disruptions to our usual way of doing business. The Retail Dive team is working from home in multiple states to bring you our analysis of the forces reshaping retail. Here's what we can't stop discussing and debating. Here's where we talk about the news outside of our reporting. Welcome to the back room. Uh, I'm Ben Unglesby with Retail Dive. I'm Daphne Howland with Retail Dive. And I'm Jeff Wells with Grocery Dive. And thanks for joining us. Uh, and thank you for joining us, Jeff. Jeff is a, a special guest at our sister publication. I think this is your first time on the uh, on the podcast, right, Jeff? It is. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk about what pretty much everybody in the world is talking about right now, how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the world and our world is, is retail. And it's hit everything pretty hard. And retail sales were the... The new numbers are out for March, and they kind of showed us what we already knew. But Daphne, you wrote about that. Why don't you kind of tell us what the numbers showed us? Yeah, so March apparel sales were the real bummer in that report. March was kind of interesting because stores hadn't been closing en masse the way they have by now. So the kinds of numbers we saw were especially devastating because it just means that things are going to get worse from here on out. The other thing besides just the store closures is the fact that a lot of people are getting laid off right now. And even those who aren't are getting nervous about the economy. So discretionary spending that, you know, 52% decline at apparel retailers. If that just happened in March, I can't even imagine what's going to happen going forward. And we've seen even at the big box mass merchants, Walmart, Target, Costco, and some others, they saw, looking at foot traffic, you know, they saw spikes early on in March, and even they have dropped off, I think. Um, and, and it's kind of hard to say why, but maybe people were stockpiling and got everything we need. And then now we've seen Walmart and Target start to limit store traffic to try and, you know, keep too many people from congregating in the stores. Um, Jeff, can you give us a sense of what's going on in the grocery world in terms of sales, traffic, what those stores are doing to you know mitigate the spread of disease at their locations? Yeah. I mean, you talk about retail sales being down. Uh, it's kind of the opposite story with grocery stores right now. Sales are up 26.9% in March over February. So um, major increases there. You talk about foot traffic moderating a little more at Walmart and Target, and I think grocers are seeing that as well. What you're seeing is a shift to more online shopping, uh, which is coming with its own challenges. Retailers are facing challenges uh, in stores as well as online. They're putting in safety precautions in stores, everything from plexiglass barriers to uh, separate consumers from cashiers to marking out spacing on floors to indicate, you know, these six foot distances that they should be standing from one another. Retailers have also been, this is really interesting, they've been putting uh, in one way aisle traffic. So you go through a Walmart or a Kroger store in one direction, again, to keep that store spacing 
And they're, they're also limiting the number of shoppers, uh, as you noted, allowed in at one time, anywhere from 50% capacity to as little as 20% capacity. And then I think one of the real challenges that grocers are facing right now is filling online orders in a timely fashion. A lot of retailers that built out e-commerce platforms just in the past couple of years since Amazon bought Whole Foods, they're struggling now with this glut of demand that is, you know, in some cases between five and 10 times higher than normal. Um, and so that has been a real challenge for them. It's shaking the grocery industry kind of in a different way, but still uh, very, very challenging times. Are, are grocers, do they feel, I mean, are, are they all kind of moving in unison or is there, are there disparities between the different steps different companies are taking? There is a lot of um, moving in unison going on at Grocery Dive. We, just like Retail Dive and some of the other verticals, we set up a tracker looking at grocery company policies and how they're evolving. And what we typically see is one company makes an announcement and then you see this kind of snowball effect where then a bunch of other ones follow. Uh, you know, the plexiglass barriers was an example of that. The one-way aisle traffic. Now we're seeing, you know, a couple of stores that were piloting, turning their supermarkets into dark store operations where they basically shut a store down to foot traffic. Now you're seeing more and more uh, retailers that are, are doing that. In terms of, I think we've seen a lot of up to this point disparity in measures to address worker safety. I think at the outset, there was a lot of hesitation on the part of grocery retailers to you know, mandate that workers wear gloves and masks. I think there were concerns over you know, making customers fearful um, about the spread of the virus, but you're, you're starting to see them turn more now towards providing protective equipment when they can, letting employees wearing that protective equipment. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen that all over where retailers are staying open and even online retailers like, you know, Amazon and its warehouses, workers feeling you know, insecure about coming into work when a lot of the country is staying home. I'm guessing that those kinds of measures that protect workers probably make customers feel better too. One of the things I've been stumped by in a couple of places is just like having to touch things. I did a story on, you know, kind of a little snapshot on the consumer and one of my experts was telling me these cleanliness moves, the barriers and the extra hand sanitizer and stuff, that's just going to become an expectation even after this gets a little better. We're just not going to want to touch things that other people touched. Money feels really not clean right now, you know, paper money. And so any sense of what kinds of either Customer behavior or grocery store behavior might last for quite a while, like become the new normal. Yeah, it's hard to say. I do think one thing that is interesting is you're seeing all of these kind of mitigation initiatives being rolled out, but it's a very imperfect science. You know, I give you an example. If I go to, you know, my local grocery store here, they have, you know, these six foot spacing marks on the floors leading up to the register. They have a plexiglass barrier in front of the checkout. But if you're walking through the aisles, it is impossible to stay six feet away from people at all times. Grocers have introduced this one way aisle traffic 
And the thing I'm wondering about that, and we're actually looking into this now, is how does that actually work? Does that is it a conga line of shoppers going through the aisle, and you have to stay exactly six feet apart? What if somebody gets antsy and wants to go around somebody and breaks that six foot barrier? What if you have somebody who wants to double back and and break that you know one way aisle format? So uh, this is why I think you're still seeing so much uneasiness from consumers about being in grocery stores. And to your question about long-term impacts, yeah, I, I can't say exactly what this will look like, you know, a year from now, but I would bet that people are going to feel a little more hesitant about going into grocery stores in the future. Jeff, when you mentioned earlier about the one way, <laughs> I was thinking just this past weekend on my trip to the grocery store, Nobody was, I mean, no, it's not true. It's not that nobody was following those, but I saw people, including myself, constantly break the one-way signage to either double back and get something or because people weren't washing the floors and paying attention. I noticed that all the time at the grocery stores. Like, it's so, I mean, it's just logistically difficult for the customers to do social distancing when, A, we're not used to it. And even if we were trained better, it's still, yeah, there's just those run-ins in the aisle. It's just incredibly difficult to, uh, to avoid each other. I mean, physically and given the layout of stores. Well, and enforcement is just dependent on shame, sort of like limiting yourself to 10 items in the express aisle, you know? There are those moments where you're at 16. I mean, I've seen people go to like 18 things in a limited 10, you know, checkout lane. And it's like, you just know that person has that you got to do what you got to do look. And there's nothing you can do about it. I guess the question is, is there enough buy-in in society to sort of follow those new rules? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, I think it varies. You know, I'm in Seattle. I go to one grocery store and people feel like they're taking it pretty seriously. You know, the six foot barrier rule. And then I went to another one and it was a lot of older consumers who were not wearing masks, were not maintaining the six foot barrier. I just think that this is such, this problem is one where it's an invisible threat and it's hard for a lot of people still to take that seriously. And, you know, I think the news here, there's been news coming out about how we're flattening the curve, infection rates are lowering. And so I think there could be some sense of people feeling like we may start be starting to turn the corner with this, even though that is, you know, the risk is that people feel comfortable and then they go out and then this virus reignites, um, so to speak. But yeah, it's, it's, it just seems, I, I really am curious about you know, the, the imperfections of implementations of these policies. And I think it's a case of they're trying to do the best that they can, the retailers are, but, you know, with the plexiglass barriers, uh, we've heard people saying, well, you can't hear what the cashier when they talk to you. So people will lean around the plexiglass barrier. Our reporter, Sam Silverstein, did a story where he interviewed a couple of retailers that are starting to take customer temperatures Right now, you have retailers that are taking employee employee temperatures when they're coming into stores, and some independent grocers are saying we're we're testing customers mm-hmm. as well. And you know that introduces a lot of privacy and procedural issues. Um, this one grocer in Connecticut we talked to who's doing it, he said you know unapologetically if he can lower the risk in his stores, even just a little bit, he's willing to do it. But what do you do if you have a customer that says, well, you're not keeping me out of the store? How do you enforce that safely? So 
all sorts of just questions that are that arise out of these different policies. I think the workers must be under tremendous pressure because I mean I think a lot of times enforcement has to come down to them, and I mean they have to train. It's probably I would imagine up to the employees to kind of enforce the rules and, and train customers to kind of act in a completely different manner. And I've I've seen grocery workers have to stop people from hoarding essentially like kind of lay out the rules where there's been limits on how much toilet paper people can buy and there's a trip to the store a month ago i made and this was just kind of right as everything in my area was closing down and people i mean it was kind of the height of panic buying and i mean just in a single trip to the grocery store i saw workers have to explain to three different people limits on toilet paper buying and other people were coming in because they were angry because there are no carts out. And this is an Aldi where you know the carts are all kind of locked up, and all the carts are gone. And just giving the workers a hard time as though they had any control over it. I mean, it's just got to be an incredibly stressful time to be a grocery worker right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fear among workers right now. Definitely. Yeah, it was a stressful job long before I worked in retail for more than ten years. It was stressful with no pandemic. And it's like one of the lowest paying jobs in the United States in general already. And with so many part-time workers who don't have healthcare benefits on top of it, it just seems like a lot to ask any employee at that level to be some kind of enforcer. We already know that, you know, retail customers can get, you know, advocate for themselves pretty heatedly. Yeah, I think that there's this popular narrative that grocery store workers are heroes, which is really, it's it's nice to see. And I think that it's bought them a lot of goodwill from shoppers. And I have, you know, heard stories about and seen, you know, myself, grocery shoppers thanking workers in stores. At the same time, you also, I think, have a lot of workers who are saying, that's great that you think I'm a hero, but I didn't take this job in order to be you know, an emergency worker or to put myself in this harm's way. I mean, what you're seeing is grocery chains, also, you know, uh, Walmart, Amazon, they're bumping pay, they're providing additional benefits, bonuses. But even then, you know, is $2 an hour worth it? Um, I talked to a Kroger employee recently who was um, put on a two-week mandatory leave because of exposure to COVID. And she said she didn't feel like two weeks was enough. She had to take a third week of vacation for childcare purposes. She had a kid, she couldn't find a babysitter. So she was taking an extra week of vacation to line up childcare. You know, I think retailers are are trying to do the best that they can, but things fall through the cracks. Well, you know, in a lot of ways, I think retailers have been driving policy, which feels sort of inappropriate. There are certain kind of high profile politicians who are instituting rules finally in more recent weeks. But for a while there, it was up to the retailer. And definitely, you know, there were a couple of department stores that refused to close, even though their employees were really asking for it. And it just shows such a lack of guidance that we have. There's no protocol that says this is effective. This is conservative. This is necessary. We just don't have the guidance. I think that's partly because so little is known about this particular disease, but also just there's a dearth of 
leadership right now. So people are almost looking to their grocery stores to dictate or to inform them on what's appropriate. I'm not sure the grocery stores know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we're seeing is major chains now are starting to advocate for more federal protection. They want their workers to be classified on a federal level as emergency workers, which would give them better access to protective gear, as well as additional services like subsidized childcare. So there's this mounting appeal coming from the retailers saying, we want more protections, we want more information. On a slightly different note, when we talk about enforcement within stores and also chains you brought up, Daphne, that are staying open, it seems like even in aids and localities where there are restrictions on which businesses can stay open and which can't, there's a gray area and almost kind of a like a self-policing. And maybe my guess is just that local governments don't necessarily have the resources or the appetite to police everybody. I mean, how could they possibly police every single business in their, in their jurisdiction? Um, but you, you, wrote, uh, you wrote extensively, Daphne, about some of the discretionary retailers that have been staying open. What did you kind of find about their reasoning and, and potential consequences? They didn't really give me, I'm um, thinking of Dillard's in particular, which kept the most of its stores open for the longest. They didn't really give a reason, well, except to keep their employees working for their employees' sake, presumably. It's worth noting that most other retailers, including department stores that have closed, paid their workers for at least a couple of weeks, even after they closed. But, you know, as more stores have closed, either by order or by peer pressure or for whatever reason, the discussion I feel like is shifting, and I haven't written about this yet, is shifting to the disparities between some of these mass merchants like Walmart and Target that have been designated essential because they sell groceries and household essentials, but who also sell apparel and lawn furniture and furniture and pillows and things that smaller retailers also sell and would like to sell, but can't because they're closed. I talked to a very irate small business retailer in LA, and he thinks that Target and Walmart shouldn't be allowed to sell those kinds of things. Well, in some places they're not. I, what, I think two states. Yeah, Vermont and Michigan. And yeah. um, he said a few cities in Europe also did, did a similar thing. Um, and, I, and I think that's a measure to keep store store traffic out. But um, Right. But it's an interesting position to be in where you're staying open because you sell toilet paper and food, but you also sell. Well, and Jeff, I mean, large supermarkets and even in the smaller ones are, are similar. I mean, they sell discretionary goods of different sorts depending on the store, right? Now, have they seen sales of those things go up? Are they benefiting from being open and also selling hardware and office supplies and lawn, you know, whatever, apparel sometimes. Yeah, I haven't seen the numbers, but I mean, I would really imagine so. And I do wonder out of all of this, is this just going to provide more fuel for Walmart and Amazon? Like, are they going to just continue to run away with the game here because they can stay open because they can sell so much online? I don't know. What do you guys think about who might be the winners, if anybody coming out of this? I mean, that even showed up in March where general retailers actually had a 
5% increase year over year. March was a pretty grim report, but general retailers, mass merchants, warehouse clubs had a 3.9% increase, and then um, e-commerce had 13% increase. But I think uh, along with, what did you say, Walmart and Amazon, I think I would put Target and Costco definitely. Pretty much the winners before this thing started. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I also do wonder about startups gaining quite a bit of traction out of this. You know, in the grocery industry, there have been these e-commerce startups like like a Thrive Market on the West Coast, uh, like a Farmstead, Boxed. Some of these online retailers that have, you know, been fairly small, you know, kind of nibbling at the edges. I think this stands to really benefit them, especially as other retailers are having so much trouble filling online orders right now. I also even wonder about, you know, community supported agriculture, uh, online farmers markets. You're seeing restaurants now offering groceries. So I do wonder about like some of the smaller enterprises out there, benefits trickling down to them, um, and also any of the retailers that are just getting creative right now. I think the local retailers are under such pressure right now, but at the same time, that's where I've seen the most creativity, like a local small grocer here doing curbside all of a sudden, not anything they ever did before. Another grocer that had a bakery, their bakery wasn't working, but so they were selling five pound bags of flour when no one could find flour anywhere else. So I feel like those guys are being creative. And I wonder if there's a certain hunkering down that people are going to try to throw some business toward their local guys, you know, just make an extra effort to keep them around. I don't know. We'll see. Jeff. I mean, I haven't looked closely at it for probably a couple of years now, but online had kind of slow penetration into the overall grocery industry leading up to this. Do you think there there could be a permanent consumer shift in this where people are more comfortable buying groceries and doing pickup than they ever were before and a good chunk of those are going to are going to stay online even when this all kind of resolves? Yeah, that's something that a lot of people in the industry are talking about right now. I think that this will accelerate online grocery adoption. Uh, I think a lot of people have been forced to move to online grocery lately, people who were formerly reluctant to do it. I mean, if you look at the reasons why people did not want to shop for groceries online, it was things like not trusting someone else to you know, pick their, their fresh products. Um, it was price was another big barrier, you know, time availability. Um, and those have kind of fallen away now out of safety concerns that people have. And so you've seen just this massive increase. And I think, yes, a lot of people now that have not tried it are now trying it and seeing that these platforms are actually pretty, you know, intuitive and compelling. And I think, you know, a lot of people have gotten online grocery orders and have been very satisfied with the process. That said, I also wonder about the impact of all these service delays right now, because in major markets, I mean, New York City is kind of an extreme example. Getting a fresh direct delivery slot is like getting, you know, a ticket to Wonka's Chocolate Factory. You know, it's just... (laughs) It's just like I have friends who are trying to, you know, score one of these coveted delivery slots. And I think they, you know, 
have about a hundred thousand delivery slots for you know all the people in that city that are clamoring for them. And it varies by market. I think you have some markets where people can get uh, online grocery orders pretty quickly still, but I think you have a lot of markets where it's you know a four, five, six day delay on getting a delivery or a pickup order, um, or you're just not even able to get one because the slots are all filled up because they only you know they only allot spaces one week out. Um, You've seen Instacart now offers an option where you can pick a slot that's two weeks out. I mean, that's just an indication of, of kind of how far out people are looking. And when when people people are going online, you know, I wonder if they're seeing these delays and they're thinking, gosh, you know, I can't wait when I can go back to the store again and ditch online. So I'm wondering about that. Yeah. I think some of the some of what's being tolerated now because we're in such an extraordinary situation might really fall off as people are able to get in their own cars and take care of it themselves. I had an earful from a friend who had ordered Fresca from a major retailer, got a note that it was being replaced by, I don't know, something that didn't work for him. I guess it wasn't diet or something. And um, he couldn't fix it because that would mean another two hours or I don't know what. And so if, if it's not being executed, those little you know, it's not a huge deal breaker. You're still going to keep fulfilling this task in this way for the foreseeable future. But if too many of those things happen, you know, people are just going to take care of it themselves and be grateful. Yeah. And we had wrote a story recently because online traffic has been so high. Uh, some retailers have actually, they've, they put their uh, shoppers into a digital queue before they can even access the site. The funny thing is, is it's the same company that does a waiting list for Ticketmaster has contracted with a couple of these grocery retailers because, you know, their back end systems just can't handle the demand flooding onto their websites. It just wasn't built for it. And so they have this function that can kind of turn on, turn off, depending on the the traffic level. And that can't be, I mean, for a lot of shoppers, that can't be a good experience. And then they get, people were complaining, they get through that and then they try to get a delivery slot and they can't do it because then all the delivery times are taken up. So yeah, I, I think it's a good time for people to be trialing online grocery, but you can't help but think what the uptick in adoption might actually be if grocers were further along in the evolution of the channel. Yeah, true. Well, I think that's pretty much the podcast for today. Thanks everyone for listening to us and be sure to subscribe, write to us, leave a comment, send us tips if you have anything to say. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on guys. Great to have you. Yeah, of course. Anytime.